The following content is explicit. It's Wednesday, June 13th, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Corey Stewart sounds like should be a NASCAR guy. But no, he is the guy who won the Republican nomination to run for Senate from Virginia. He is opposing, in every way, Tim Kaine. Did you know that Tim Kaine has never lost an election? Well, there was this one time in 2016 when he was on the bottom of the ticket with Hillary Clinton. Remember that? Here's some Corey Stewart fun facts. Uh, First, let's define them. This is a phrase taken from his website. Corey will fight to defeat political correctness protect Virginia's history, crack down on illegal immigration, and stand up to Washington elites. Well, the elitist of the elites is the president. I mean, that guy's the top dog. And President Trump has already fired Corey Stewart once. Stewart, who served as the Virginia chair of the campaign, was fired after he staged a protest outside of the Republican National Convention without approval from the campaign. Yeah, you could see even why an insurgent campaign like Trump's wouldn't want the campaign manager actually protesting the convention that actually nominates you. I, I could see that. That, that. that is strategic. Actually, Stewart is trying to be more Trump than Trump while still being very, very Trump at the same time. He's pro-Robert E. Lee statues. He throws around the word conservative on Reddit, promises to very much bring the pain against Tim Kaine. Here is uh, Virginia's former lieutenant governor, Republican Bill Balling, tweeting on Twitter after Stewart won, I am extremely disappointed that a candidate like Corey Stewart could win the Republican nomination for U.S. Senate. This is clearly not the Republican Party I once knew, loved, and proudly served. Every time I think things can't get worse, they do, then there is no end in sight. Welcome to America 2018, former Republican official Bill Balling. But here's why I oppose the Stewart candidacy. None of what I listed really recommends the Stewart candidacy, but I think there's a greater risk out there. If elected, the U.S. Senate will have three Corys. Three Corys! It goes over 220 years without one Cory... And then it gets Cory Booker in 2013, Cory Gardner in 2015. See a pattern? Now possibly Cory Stewart. Too many Corys. The Senate will have as many Corys as African Americans, though Cory Booker has a foot in each world. Remember that stat that said there were more men named John who were CEOs of Fortune 500 companies than women named anything? Well, if Corey is elected, there will still be more men named John in the Senate. Don't worry about that. But there'll be more Corys than Davids, more Corys than Jims, more Corys than Bobs, more Corys than Bills. And I think I mean that last one literally. There may be no Bills. The Senate could grind to a halt, what with so many Corys in the kitchen. Who are you going to call? Hi, you've reached the Corey hotline. Four ninety-five a minute. Here are some words that rhyme with Corey. Glory. Story. Allegory. Dilatory. Nugatory. Derogatory to old glory. So I say, let's cap the Corys and save Uncle Sam. On the show today, it is another segment about names. Proper names. But in this case, not a person, a country. Still, idiotic politics are in play, but names. But first, the World Cup starts tomorrow. The sportsmanship, the athleticism, the glory, the bribery, and the scandals. Journalist Ken Bensinger covers it all, except for the athletic and sportsmanship and glory part. More 
payoffs than playoffs in his new book, Red Card. So let's give Ken a big gist welcome as we all storm the pitch and engage in acts of nationalistic hooliganism. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. It turns out that FIFA is not the cuddly, fluffy international organization that you may have thought just by watching FIFA-branded videos. FIFA, the... uh, International Soccer Federation runs the World Cup, awards the World Cup. Turns out a lot of officials there get some kickbacks for the World Cup. And this is all brought to a head by a series of prosecutions led by IRS and FBI prosecutors. It's all detailed in Ken Bensinger's new book, Red Card, How the U.S. Blew the Whistle on the World's Biggest Sports Scandal. Hey, Ken, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Mike. How can this be said to be the world's biggest sports scandal if the sport is still there? If the World Cup is still there, if soccer is still the most popular sport in the world and the World Cup will draw more attention than any event in the world. Well, I'm not sure the intention was ever to bring down soccer or remove it from the face of the earth. Um, Maybe there's some fans of other sports who might want that, but I think the intention was to to rip out all the dirt from the sport. And on that level, I think there was a lot of success. But wouldn't you say that the prosecution and exposure of Lance Armstrong and the doping in the Tour de France did more... I don't know. I don't. I think you could argue that that was more of a scandal, although smaller of a sport, in that it shook the foundations of the sport. And I just see FIFA as, you know, going along still to this I mean, day. Yeah, I think. Look, cycling still has a Tour de France as well, but but I think you're right. It was a massive blow to it because it was a smaller sport, sort of arrayed around one or two massive stars. FIFA is much larger, that much more powerful. I mean, it's orders of magnitude bigger than cycling ever was, even in its glory days. And I think that FIFA, you know, what we saw is the removal of multiple generations of leadership. We see 48 people indicted. We see companies indicted and pleading guilty and maybe more to come. I mean, hint, hint, I think some big names could still fall in that area. And um, we see massive amounts of money being paid, huge reforms across the board, and lots of changes in governance. And I don't think it's over. There's, the U.S. investigation is ongoing. France, Germany, Spain, Switzerland, Uruguay, 
Australia, a bunch of other countries have their own criminal investigations going on as well. So more shoes will fall. Okay. So let's go back and let's talk about what was <laughs> the word scandal just attaches itself to international soccer. But what was the specific case that uh, they got they got them on this time? Well, what they started looking into and what they got them on are two different, two different things. Um, they started looking into Russia um, and how Russia got the World Cup. In the end, and that was a phony witch hunt, of course. Of course, it was <laughs> fake news. Yeah. And what that led them to was a whole different specific set of corruptions, which was in, in North and South America, which was principally surrounding the, the rights for soccer on TV, right? So it turns out the big money motor in soccer is, is the TV and sponsorship rights. And though a lot of attention is paid to who's bribing who for what vote in FIFA, um, most of the money on a day-to-day basis is going around related to TV contracts and sponsorship contracts. What the government found was that Almost every one of those deals comes with an under-the-table bribe. Um, and, and this is day-by-day, day, huge bribes being paid for the rights. Who's bribing who? So the media companies. There's these middlemen companies that developed in the early 1980s that now are a huge industry, which buy the rights like a wholesaler and then sell them out piece by piece to TV stations around the world, right? So these middlemen companies want to control the rights. They don't want competition. And so they pay the soccer official a bribe so that he'll sign the contract only with them and nobody else, and we'll give it to them for below market rate. So why was it the U- who are the central figures in the United States for the United States to bring this prosecution of this international sport where the United States isn't one of the major players? Right. So if you go to Europe, as I have, and you talk to soccer officials out there, they'll tell you, oh, this is cl- it's clear what happened. The U.S. got slighted in the 2010 vote and, and didn't get the 22 World Cup. And that's and Qatar got it, and this is just revenge from the top down. But in fact, that has nothing to do with how it happened. In fact, this case opened about five or six months before that vote ever took place. This case opened because a couple FBI agents went to London and met with a fellow who said he had some interesting information about what the Russians were up to. And that fellow was? That fellow is Christopher Steele. Perhaps you've heard of him. <laughs> he's become a little bit famous for other stuff. Yeah. Um, and in fact, the other stuff he's become famous for was funneled through the same FBI agent. When it was time to, to turn over his famous dossier, he gave it to the same FBI agent. That agent came back to New York, sat down and met with some prosecutors in Brooklyn, which is one of two federal districts in, in the city, and they're famous for busting the Italian mafia, right? Mm-hmm. The Gambinos and the Bonanos and all these families. These are the guys who did it. The Eastern District, that's their forte. And he said, I think I got a case for you. And they agreed. And this um, y- young but very intelligent prosecutor in Brooklyn named Evan Norris stepped up, said he wanted to do the case, took it, and spearheaded it. About a year later, they're a bit stymied because it turns out the Russians are good at what they do. It's, mm-hmm. hard, to, it's hard to pin them down and stuff. And the, and the deal is, it can't just be we have strong evidence that they broke the law or a law. It has They have to have broken American law. Yeah, right. You have to be, as a prosecutor, very creative and find out ways that it has jurisdiction here, right? So you, if you break a European law or something, it doesn't help. you got to find yeah. American law that's broken on our territory or somehow goes through here. And the trick they finally got with the help of this other guy was using the U.S. banking system because everyone's paying bribes in dollars. All the money's flowing through U.S. banks. What about the actual World Cups? What have we documented and charged in terms of corruption in awarding the World Cups? So there's a huge shadows over multiple different World Cup assignings. So the 2006 World Cup in Germany, the 2010 World Cup in South Africa, and uh, the 2018 in Russia, and 22 in Qatar, all of them have big question marks over them. Some of the people who pled guilty in the FIFA case admitted to taking bribes for the 2010 World Cup in South Africa. Chuck Blazer, an American who was brought in and was a linchpin of the case, said that he and Jack Warner, who was his uh, 
closest ally, a, a head of Trinidad's federation and a, a major power broker, split a $10 million bribe to vote for South Africa. More recently, it came out that Germany, there was a weird $6 million payments that were funneled through Adidas in order for Germany to get the, get the World Cup in 2006. No one knows what happened with Russia because Russia, when they went to ask him why they beat England for it, said, oops, all of our computers were burned up and we don't have them, so there's no record, sorry. Uh, it's been proven that at least one work of art was given to a FIFA executive uh, committee member. That person yeah. acknowledged it but claimed it was really ugly and a bad piece of art, so it doesn't count. Plausible. Um, another executive board member who uh, was subsequently put under multiple criminal investigations was alleged to have received a Picasso, denies he ever received it, and FIFA said, all right, we'll take your word for it. And okay. that was the end of that. So that's sort of the bill of health on the Russia investigation. And finally, Qatar, um, there's been entire books written about whether Qatar paid bribes. Clearly, huge amounts of money were paid by Qatar to get people to vote for it over the U.S. So FIFA has what? How many member nations? Over 200? 211. And the United States gets as much of a vote as as the Faroe Islands and St. Lucia, Correct. right? So you're someone from, I hate to denigrate St. Lucia, but it's, I think, the smallest country in FIFA or one of them. Montserrat. Uh, Montserrat, right. So you're the guy from Montserrat. You have as much a vote as the United States and Germany and England. And, you know, people want to wine and dine you and maybe something else, you'll, uh, you'll vote with them. So under that structure, how much reform is possible? What's the appetite for all these little fiefdoms, all these little tiny countries, big countries, all the African countries, to stand up and say, let's go along with uh, more openness, less bribery, you know, what England, Germany, and the United States are recommending? I mean, it's, it is maybe the fundamental question. Right, because because if you're Germany or you're Brazil or something, there's a good argument for why you want FIFA to be better because you have a good chance of making most of the World Cups, if not all of them, maybe even winning it, playing a massive role in the sport. But if you're the Faroe Islands or Montserrat or Sri Lanka, you're not going to be playing any World Cups soon. You're just not going to make it. So therefore, it doesn't really matter to you. But what does matter to you and what's kept them in line for so long is that FIFA distributes its money to these countries every year, right? Millions and millions of dollars go to these. And if again, if you're the head of Brazil's federation, well, a million dollars from FIFA is kind of a meaningless amount of money. But if you're the head of St. Kitts, a million dollars is a crazy amount of money to receive for for two soccer pitches and like you know and a couple of little like portable goals. Yeah, and you can so, buy some sweet kits at St. Kitts. Yeah, yeah. some very nice kit in St. Kitts. <laughs> and so for those guys, they don't want that ever change. They don't care what happens to the sport at the highest level. They just want to make sure they get their annual payment. And I think finding some way around that, people have proposed sort of like a two chamber system in FIFA, like a House of Representatives and a Senate. Yeah. So that some countries are more powerful than others. Some kind of solution like that, because the pure de- democratic approach is clearly flawed. Tell me about Chuck Blazer. I was long fascinated by this gigantic Santa Claus looking, well, more of a reddish beard. But just to see him once, you would say, who is that guy? And he was pretty much the most important person associated with U.S. soccer. And he's a central figure in the book. Yeah, Chuck Blazer is really larger, was larger than life. Of course, he's no longer with us. He died uh, last July um, after a long bout of cancer. He climbed up from Westchester soccer in New Rochelle all the way up to be a member of FIFA's executive committee, the first American on that committee in 50 years, um, and one of the 24 most powerful men in all of world soccer. Huge larger-than-life figure, not least because he weighed upwards of 450 pounds, but also because he lived in the Trump Tower, was buddies with Donald Trump, and people like TV producer Dick Wolf. He hung out at, at legendary New York literary spot Elaine's uh, when he wasn't traveling first class around the world to watch soccer matches or go to the Olympics or do all these things. Um, and at the same time, and all throughout this time, he's skimming money from the sport. 
tens of millions of dollars he's skimming. He's putting everything on soccer's credit card, literally, mm-hmm. and, um, and keeping it all for himself. He did have sort of a nervous tick that turns out to have been a problem, which is he didn't ever file taxes. Yeah. Uh, and it turns out if you never file taxes, it, it might catch up to you and bite yeah. you in the butt, and it bit him in the butt real hard. It turns out it's a misdemeanor not to file, but if you actually owed money, then it becomes quite a felony. Yeah, because you're I didn't know that it was only a misdemeanor. If you don't make money and don't file, it's only a misdemeanor. That's it's right. something to think about. But if you, if you, <laughs> that's right. But if you, if you hide income, they really yeah. don't like it. They don't like it. So they charge him and they flip him? That's right. Yeah. How much, how important was what he said to their case? I think it was critical. Uh, first of all, it was the first guy they could get who would tell them what was going on. These prosecutors and these FBI agents and this IRS agent didn't have a sense of how this whole world worked. Mm-hmm. So they get Blazer in a room and he starts telling him, and he's, an, he's a very intelligent guy, super intelligent guy and a great uh, raconteur. He's telling him stories. He's talking all day long. These proffer <laughs> sessions are going 10, so 12 hours. in Brooklyn is the new Elaine's. Yeah, yeah well, holding court. Uh, yeah, yeah, imagine a sort of a windowless conference room yeah. and these prosecutors being like, okay, can we go, please? Stop <laughs> talking about soccer. So that's what he did day after day. He met with them dozens of times and he told them the whole story of soccer and particularly how this, this whole bribery scheme worked. So that was critical so they could get their mindset around what the problem was. The other thing he did is he wore a wire for them and he made phone calls for them that were all recorded, right? And um, by doing that, he helped ensnare the next, next level of, or next layer of cooperators, right? And yeah. principally a guy from South America, a Brazilian named Jose Avila, who, um, if Blazer was the one taking the bribes, Avila was the one paying them. And in these kind of investigations, you want to get that guy. You want to get the guy who paid the bribes because they're going to tell you where all the bodies are buried. And that's what they did. And they arrested this Brazilian in his hotel in Miami in May 2013. And um, he just began telling him everything. So the last question I want to ask about is a person who maybe we didn't mention at all, Sepp Blatter. He ran yeah. FIFA. And he really got, uh, if the Swiss give a slap on the wrist, he got... It seems to me the harshest you could say is that he got just a slap on the shins. <laughs> Ankle. Yeah, maybe. Ankle. Sepp is, uh, if you ever have a chance to meet with Sepp, I highly recommend it. He's, yeah. a, he's, a, real, he's a real character because you think you're going to meet a Bond villain. Yeah. Instead, you, you feel like you're meeting the, like, the charming, slight, slightly drunk uncle that you yeah, always wish yeah. you had. Kindly Carpenter from Fairy Tales. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you feel comfortable with this guy. It's part of his genius. I met a guy once in England who said, you met with Sepp? I said, yeah. So what do you think of him? I said, he's a good politician. He says, no, he's the best politician on the world today. That could be. The yeah. guy's a genius at this kind of thing. And um, I think he wasn't so much corrupt as one of these guys who also turned, averted his gaze and let people be corrupt because what he wanted was the power and the influence and the prestige. And I think for him, the prestige of being the head of FIFA was much more important than everything else, and he would have done anything to preserve that. And so but, his, I, but his stated salary was... Three million bucks at the end. But he lived like an absolute... A mirror, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I was, I'm, I'm probably one of the few journalists who was into his house, and it's very Swiss, but very nice, right? Yeah. Very Swiss in that there's almost nothing in it. Yeah. The Swiss don't like a lot of possessions. Disorder, not okay. But it's, everything is the most pristine, perfect thing you can possibly imagine. It all closes with a perfect click. Right. And um, every one of his, I mean, he's never, he travels all the time in the highest class accommodations and lives in the highest yeah. class hotels. He and gave me a ride to the train station yes. in like a brand, you know, with his driver in a brand new Mercedes S class. Right. Totally paid unnecessary, FIFA. paid yeah. for by FIFA. Right, right. Every First meal class. he has is pretty much paid for by FIFA. That's yeah. right. And luxury hotels rename their presidential suite for him when he comes in. <laughs> but that's, that's been his lifestyle, right? Yeah. So giving that up, I think, is painful for him. But more than anything, it's sort of, I mean, the coasters in his house are FIFA themed coasters. Mm-hmm. This is a man who can't say, separate his own identity from what he has run for so many years. And he really believes that sort of the fix was in on him. But, you know, the truth of the matter is, I mean, he, he, he at least tacitly, if not actively, permitted his own downfall. 
Ken Bensinger, author of Red Card, How the U.S. Blew the Whistle on the World's Biggest Sports Scandal. Thank you, Ken. Thank you so much, Mike. And now, the spiel. What is in a name? The name is Macedonia quite a bit. If you are Greek and you heard me say Macedonia, trigger warning, Macedonia, you might hate me now because I'm referring to the country of Macedonia as the Greeks don't want to call it. They like their territory named Macedonia. They don't like their neighbor to the north. They insist that internationally, the Macedonia that you and I call Macedonia is formally called the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, which to the ears of this former United Kingdom, United States resident rings a bit clunky, even though the former UK, US thing, that would be fuck us. Earlier this year, many, many Greeks took to the streets in Athens. Athens, the city of Athens, by the way, is 350 miles from the border with Macedonia. Sorry, the border with former Macedonia. Now, protesters are gathering in central Athens for a massive rally to protest against a potential Greek compromise in a dispute with neighboring Macedonia over its official name. And in the northern Greek province of Macedonia, the protests were bigger and even uglier. So why all these protests? Sky News explains. The Greeks have long objected to its neighbouring country using the name, saying it implies a territorial claim on Greece's own Macedonia region. Oh man, I hate to explain language to the people who invented half of it and contribute so much to it, but that is not an implication. That is an inference. The Macedonians, sorry, the West Bulgarians, aren't implying they want to take over Greeks' Macedonia. The Greeks are inferring that. The Greeks accuse the Macedonians of the crime of irredentism. Irredentism is a political or popular movement that seeks to reclaim and reoccupy a land that the movement's members consider to be lost or unredeemed territory. Irredentism. Macedonia clearly showing the wish to redeem the part of Greece, redeem it like a can of soda pop for five cents in most states, 10 cents in Michigan and Oregon. And the Greeks think this will be an unwarranted redemption, an unearned redemption, like Sam Rockwell's character in Three Billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. But it's not true. The Macedonians seem to have no, no want, no real actual desire to go in and take part of Greece. It's just what the Greeks have convinced themselves is going down. The Macedonians, they just want to be Macedonia. Now, the thing is, their old government was very nationalistic, and they wouldn't change their name They wouldn't come off this idea that we're just going to be Macedonia. They were quite happy sticking with the status quo, even if it meant Macedonia couldn't join the EU. Because without Greece's approval, Macedonia was not allowed to join the EU. It cost their citizens a lot of money, but it was more important to the former nationalistic government, which was led by Nikola Gruveski. But now there is a new, more moderate government, and the foreign minister of that is Nikola Dmitriev. So somehow Nikola Dmitriev, who is against everything Nikola Gruveski stood for, looked at the issue of names and said, eh, not that important. Don't really tell you that much about a person or a place. So they decided to change the name. And the new name is, drumroll please, 
Okay, that was Bazooki Fanfare. Still, the new name is... Now the neighbours have reached an historic accord to resolve the dispute. Macedonia has agreed to change its constitution and rename itself the Republic of North Macedonia. North Macedonia. North Macedonia. Everyone's happy. Veteran UN diplomat Matthew Nimitz, who has been a mediator in the name dispute since 1994, said it was leadership, vision, and determination that got this North Macedonia name changed. The Greek prime minister's on board. The Macedonian prime minister, Zoran Zayav, is said, we've done the impossible. This will get his country into the EU. This will lead to improved living conditions. Everyone's ha- Oh, no. Reuters reports, Macedonia's president said on Wednesday he would not sign a landmark deal, reached with Greece on changing the country's name, dashing hopes of a swift end to a diplomatic dispute that had blocked the bid to join the EU. A swift end? You, you know that diplomat's been working on it since 1994. I mean, one day at the UN, they were like, all right, we got to sign the diplomats. Uh, you, you want Northern Ireland? All right, that's going to be a doozy. It's going to take you decades. We'll give, we'll give you that one, Steve. All right, how about El Salvador? 100,000 dead, death squads, killing priests. All right, Elizabeth, that's your nightmare. Good luck with that. And what's this? Greece wants to stop Macedonia from calling itself Macedonia? Matt, your hand's up. What do you got, an early tea time? This is going to take like a week and a half. Fine. See you soon. But it's 27 years. I mean, he's been working on it for 24 years. He was brought in three years after the dispute started. And now, who knows? This morning, it looked like Macedonia would be North Macedonia. By this afternoon, what the Greek president's refusal to sign means is that it has to go to the legislature, then back to him to sign. Why would he change his mind? Then back to the legislature. It looks quite unlikely that North Macedonia will be North Macedonia. And this all leads me to wonder, let's look at the issue of denuclearizing a country led by a totalitarian who needs nuclear weapons in order to survive. You really think that one's going to be solved in a weekend? By a handshake, four bullet points, and stock footage of an extra from Space Jam dunking. Diplomacy is hard. Progress, when the stakes are low, is really slow. When the stakes are the existence of the world, or at least the Korean peninsula, progress is nigh impossible. But we've still got to try, because maybe one day, if the stars align and all the better angels, uh, angels that are sitting over the North Korean peninsula and just north of Greece and El Salvador and and Northern Ireland and all throughout the world, if the better angels sing in unison, maybe one day there will be a north before Macedonia, but not one before Korea. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname is the GIST producer. He's accused of irredentistism, extracting molars from one patient in order to implant them in the next patient. Mary Wilson, senior producer, wants to take back the train to Babylon, wants to lay claim to the transfer at Jamaica, wants to plant a flag in the Port Jefferson line, stopping at Quag. She believes in LIRR edentism. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. He enjoys a nice poultry dish, but uh, infused with the flavor of the Canadian tundra, Yukon Territory Chicken Cacciatore. The gist, it seems like these credits are pretty reliably long jokes that don't really go anywhere. They're your obligatory shaggy dog story. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.